I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Hold on to your nose and stomachs, <laughs> listeners. We've got a real show today. That's right. Would you consider open pits of animal waste next to your home to be a nuisance? How about an ever-present stench of rotting flesh? Or infectious diseases contaminating your water supply? Well, if your neighbor is a pig farm run by Smithfield Foods, you can expect to be pretty, pretty annoyed. Our guest today will be attorney Mona Lisa Wallace, who brought a nuisance suit against Smithfield Foods in North Carolina, and author Corbin Addison, whose new book, Wastelands, the true story of farm country on trial, tells the tale of that court battle and the circumstances leading to it. It's both a sprawling story about the history of agriculture in America, the geopolitics of the pork industry, legislative capture by big ag, and the impact of agricultural pollution. And it's also a deeply personal narrative of the families whose homes, livelihoods, and health were destroyed by a bunch of greedy pigs not the four-legged kind. We're going to be spending the entire hour with Mona and Corbin. And as always, somewhere, we'll find a break. We'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's get right to it. When Big Ag's cronies are defaming you as bank robbers, pimps, and a blight, you might be doing something right. David? Mona Lisa Wallace is a North Carolina attorney who has successfully brought and litigated numerous significant personal injury, wrongful death, defective drug, asbestos, class action, and mass tort claims. She and her litigation team brought a lawsuit against the hog production component of Smithfield Foods, winning more than $500 million in damages for the facility's North Carolina neighbors. Also joining us is Corbin Addison. He is an attorney, an activist, an internationally best-selling novelist, and the author of Wastelands, The True Story of Farm Country on Trial. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Mona Lisa Wallace and Corbin Addison. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Welcome indeed. Just another footnote, Mona Lisa Wallace is one of the founders of the American Museum of Tort Law in Connecticut, the only law museum of any kind, I believe, in the world, not to mention the only tort museum in the world. And I might add that Corbin Addison's depiction of what we're going to talk about is so dramatic that it almost seems like it's heading for a Hollywood movie, like civil <laughs> action. Is that a possibility, Corbin? Oh, I certainly hope so, Ralph. I think it would be awesome. And I know Mona hopes so, too. We've definitely been having conversations. Yeah, and there are parts of the book that are really flourishing in terms of their description of eastern North Carolina and the impact that the concentrated hog industry has on the animals, the workers, and, of course, the neighbors. Now, this is an important question just to lay the groundwork because a lot of people aren't familiar with the last quarter century replacement of small hog farmers in places like Iowa and North Carolina with massive concentrated industrial hog farms from 15,000 hogs a firm on up. Mona Lisa, could you describe the scene that you 
had to analyze before you filed your nuisance lawsuit against Smithfield Farms and other defendants. Could you describe the scene in eastern North Carolina? We started looking in this case in 2013. And if you flew over, which we did in a small plane over eastern North Carolina, you would have seen how over the years there were no longer individual hog farms. Back in 1972, for example, in North Carolina, you had 18,000 individual hog farms that were owned primarily by families and individuals to feed their families. And by 1992, you had only 4,000 hog farms. So as many as 10,000 small business owners and farmers had gone out of business. And now you see CAFOs, these concentrated animal factories, flying overhead. You can look down and you can see them virtually everywhere you look. And there will be buildings that thousands of hogs are being raised in. The hogs never literally see the light of day. And you will see something called lagoons. And these are often unlined, massive, open air storage facilities. They look like football fields where there's feces and urine sitting in them. So it's actually a, a very, very sad sight to see. And when you were approached by some of the families, you were confronting an almost insuperable obstacle because it's very hard to make a connection of the enormous odor that comes from the concentration of these pigs, which we'll describe in some detail, into the areas where people lived, into their living rooms, into their bedrooms, into their back door gardens. It was just a constant stench of overwhelming intensity that floated from these lagoons and the spraying of the material on nearby lands. How can you prove a connection between the environmental impact of these pig farms and the health of these people? Very difficult. You were confronted with, well, how can you protect the workers? Well, we know all about workers' compensation laws and their limitations at the state level. So you chose the ancient doctrine, as Judge Wilkinson pointed out in his opinion, which we'll get to in the Fourth Circuit. You applied the ancient doctrine of nuisance. Can you explain that? Yes. Well, actually, it's the first tort claim that became available in this country back to 1705. One of the most basic constitutional rights of everyone in the United States is the right to use and enjoy their property. And it's obvious that if you have thousands of hogs and you have odors that come and go and are unpredictable and buzzards and flies and truck traffic 24-7, clearly the neighbors were having and interference with their use and enjoyment of their property. So it actually was a property claim. A company should never get a free pass to ruin someone's use and enjoyment of their property. And what was so concerning to me was the primary neighborhoods that these lagoons and these hog factories were being built in were in neighborhoods of people with limited means and of minorities of color. And obviously, you could even see that as you flew in the air. So it seemed to be both an environmental issue, a health issue, and a racial injustice issue all in one. Well, just reading from Corbin's book, 
wastelands, I caught a passage that sort of conveys the detail that Corbin brought here. This is all about people, listeners, real people, not virtual reality. And on page 35, he has this small passage. But the stories confirm for them that the problems down east are neither invented nor overblown. The hog farms are right there beside the neighbors' homes, like alien ships descended from the sky. For plaintiffs like Elsie Herring, a spray field is only steps away from their front porch. For Violent Branch, it's just across the road. Widow McGowan could lob a stone from his yard and hit the hog farmer's dead box, and Woodall's neighbors, Linnell and Georgia Farland, wake up every morning beside 3,000 hogs in a cesspool of waste, end quote. Corbin, you were really taken by this. You're a novelist, and you have not up to now written a major nonfiction work. But I was taken by your dedication at the beginning of the book, which I want to quote. For the neighbors who taught me what it means to love one patch of earth and sky more than the world entire, and for the lawyers who showed me the place where justice and mercy meet, and who with passion and patience brought about a miracle, end quote. So let me put this question to you. To what extent were you astonished by the greed, power, brutality, the willingness of the hog industry to get the state legislature, which was under their control largely, to pass a bill that would have rubbed out the litigation that Mona Lisa Wallace and other lawyers brought, and in addition, eliminated the nuisance action against these powerful pig farms Did this surprise you, horrify you? Could you characterize your reaction to the formidable industry that most plaintiff lawyers would never have tackled, but Mona Lisa Wallace is not most plaintiff lawyers? Can you give us a characterization? Sure. I will just underscore that and highlight it for the audience. Mona is definitely not just anybody. You know, to be honest, I mean, at this point in time in America in 2022, I can't say I'm shocked anymore by corporate malfeasance, by the attempt of the powerful to oppress and oppress and oppress and oppress and use every means at their disposal to oppress the poor, the disenfranchised, and to keep you know those folks down. So I can't say that I was shocked, but there definitely were there were moments, and when I delved into you know the political power brokering that went on where I just, it was hard to believe that it was true. I mean, it was, it felt to me like the sort of thing that a novelist would make up and, you know, where you say, you know, that fiction is stranger than truth and sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And I definitely felt that way, you know, as I was exploring the individual personalities involved, both at the state house and, you know, behind the corporate veil at Smithfield. So I was not by any means surprised at the level of corporate malfeasance and at the you know corporate capture of the state houses. But I definitely felt at moments as if I was witnessing something that I might have invented in a novel, not witnessing in retrospect something that actually happened. You know, unfortunately, North Carolina has been subject to corporate capture in the big in the ag industry for a long time. And while there really aren't that many representatives that represent the world down east, the company Smithfield has an enormous amount of clout 
And, and they do so, you know, largely because they've told a really compelling story for a long time that they represent the little guy, that they represent the family farmer. And, you know, what was so unique about this particular case is that it really pierced that illusion and, and revealed the truth for the world to see, which is that this is not about greedy travelers going after the bread and butter of, of small family farmers, but rather it's about multi-billion dollar Chinese-owned, you know, corporate behemoth spraying excrement onto the homes of mostly low-income Black neighbors, many of whom trace their ancestry on the land back 100 years, 150 years back, even to the antebellum days. And once I think Mona and her team were able to really tell the story truthfully through these cases, the folks at the state house, you know, at least some of the more courageous Republicans were willing to say, you know, to Smithfield, you know what, your story doesn't hold water anymore. And, and that's ultimately what won the day in the story that I tell in the book. It's quite a, a remarkable story and I mean, just a, a kind of subplot of the larger story. But the way that it turned out was so dramatic. And I thought, my golly, I'm going to spill a bit of ink on this particular subplot because it, it's really compelling. Well, there were five trials. Each trial represented a few of the families over a period of time. And just to provide the context, Smithfield Foods and their lawyers and propagandists tried to put the smaller pig farmers they deal with up in front, saying, look what you're doing. You're trying to put these out of business. Let's just start with the relation between Smithfield Foods and these hog farmers. They have a contract with these hog farmers. It's a very one-sided contract in favor of Smithfield. They provide the little piglets, I understand, at about 40 pounds. And they send them over to these smaller pig farms. Well, they're not so small, actually. There are thousands of pigs. But by comparison with Smithfield, these pig farms are small. And then they're fattened up to about seven times the size, to about 280 pounds per pig before they're sent off to slaughter. They are so crowded, they can barely turn around, crushed together. Quite a few of them die, and there are trucks that pick up the dead carcasses and called dead boxes. They're usually transported at night when people aren't around to watch this grisly evacuation. Explain the relationship any further, and tell us what is on the public record here. Well, Ralph, I think the evidence, we had five federal trials, and Corbin does an incredible job of describing a lot of very, very nerve-wracking, I guess. There were so many times that the cases could have been dismissed and motions were filed against us, and so many times legislation was passed. So it was a very, very, very difficult case. But the evidence showed that really we did not sue the farmers in federal court or the contract growers. Our lawsuit was against Murphy Brown. And the evidence showed that it was Murphy Brown who decided what hogs would go in the individual farms, where those farms would be located. It was Murphy Brown that owned and controlled the trucks and the truck schedule. They provided the feed. They provided the veterinarians. They provided the operating procedures. They essentially told the contract growers or the farmers exactly what they had to do and when they had to do it and the procedures that they had to use. So it was Smithville or Murphy Brown who continued 
to insist that they use the type of spray lagoon system that they continue even to use today. Actually, the contract grower, really all he did or she did was supply the labor, the land, and the buildings. But unfortunately, the burden of dealing with the waste was imposed on the contract grower or the farmer, which was, in our opinion, unbelievably unreasonable and unfair to the farmer. Now, I want to read from the amazing opinion of Judge Wilkinson, who's a very well-known appellate judge. He's written a lot of books. He's a deep conservative, but he's very thoughtful, not like what some conservative judges are today. He's really considered quite a scholar. And in his concurring opinion with Judge Thacker, which approved what you won at the trial level, which we'll get to. I thought his description was so amazing. The whole opinion could be put out in a published pamphlet to describe what was going on. So listeners, bear with me because you've probably never heard this description of the concentrated pig farming, industrial pig farming, which operates in Iowa and North Carolina and elsewhere. And I want to quote from the judge's opinion on page 71. Here goes, quote, the warp is the human hog relationship. And the root of the nuisance in this suit lay in the deplorable conditions of confinement prevailing at Kinlaw, that's the farm, conditions that there is no reason to suppose were unique to that facility. Confinement defined life for the over 14,000 hogs, all of which Murphy Brown owned, that Kinlaw Farms had crammed into its 12 confinement sheds. Consistent with Kinlaw's role as a finishing facility, Hogs arrived at around 40 pounds to be fattened to over seven times their starting weight. The one thing that never grew with the hogs, though, was the size of their indoor pens. Even though hogs grow bigger now, the pen's design has not changed a whit in 25 years. The sad fate of Kinlaw's hogs was, therefore, to remain in these densely packed pens from the time they arrived to the time they were shipped for slaughter, straining in vain as their increasing girth slowly but surely reduced them to almost suffocating closeness. To manage waste under such conditions, the concrete floors of Kinlaw's sheds were partially slatted. These slats were supposed to allow the hogs' feces and urine to fall through to a gutter system below. But due to the close confinement just described, hogs were often packed too tightly to defecate over the slats. As a result, waste built up, and as photos of Kinlaw's facilities show, hogs ended up covered in feces. The waste that did make it through the slats to the gutter system was flushed four to six times a day to one of three nearby open-air lagoons, essentially three uncovered 8 million gallon cesspools. From there, the waste material was sprayed into the air to fertilize nearby crops, a waste disposal method known as the lagoon and spray field system. The dangers endemic to such appalling conditions always manifested first in animal suffering. Ineluctably, however, the ripples of dysfunction would reach farm workers and at last members of the surrounding community. To start, take the basic issue of air quality. When pigs defecated, gases accumulated in their sheds, but at certain concentrations only possible under conditions of overcrowded indoor confinement 
These gases could become toxic, even fatal, to the hogs. To prevent its hogs from dying in their own wind, Kinlaw ventilated these sheds by opening curtains that released these noxious fumes unfiltered into the air outside. End quote. That's Judge Wilkinson's commentary and well-documented. And a little few paragraphs later, he said, all of these problems are preventable. They weren't necessary. Well, if they were preventable, Mona Lisa Wallace, why were they prevalent? What was the motivation for such cruelty, not only to the pigs, to their own workers, and to their own status in the community, not to mention the nearby families? Well, obviously, it was our position, and we believe that the juries must have agreed with us, that these were preventable conditions. There were so many things that could have been changed to not have created the problem at all. First, the technology. It's been known for many years now that there's much better technology and technology, something called the Terra Blue system and others that could have significantly reduced the odors. Additionally, they could have covered the lagoons. Of course, it shouldn't have been unlined lagoons to begin with. There was a hero in our book, and, and this gentleman is a hero in life. His name is Tom Butler. Tom Butler is today a hog farmer in North Carolina, a contract grower. And he took it upon himself when his neighbors complained to cover his lagoons and to take all types of actions, including having larger and better bins for the animals themselves to allow them some dignity, if you could use that word. So there were a lot of things that could have been done. And I believe personally, and I believe the evidence showed that it was primarily a matter of finances, that if you would undertake changes in the industry in one facility, it would, over time, yes, well, necessitate taking those changes at others. And I believe that's just simply over the years while this outdated, terrible lagoon and spray system has, has been continued by the industry. Another thing that I was looking for in the book is the role of the press. There must have been some steady coverage of the press, and some of it must have been quite supportive. Corbin, you want to elaborate on that? The press certainly didn't ignore the lawsuits in the courtroom or the run-up to the trials and the outrageous behavior of the state legislators trying to rub out the litigation and rub out the cause of action, not to mention the regular propaganda bellows of Smithfield and its allies. What was the nature of the press here, and did it help or, or hinder? Definitely the media didn't ignore the story. There were quite a, a number of major pieces that were written across time about this issue. I mean, the Washington Post covered it, the Rolling Stone covered it, I believe Wall Street Journal covered it. And then, of course, you know, there were the Raleigh News and Observer, which has a longstanding history of covering the issue going back to its Pulitzer Prize winning series, Boss Hog, back in the 90s. There were some smaller, you know, outlets as well that were very faithful in covering it. And yes, I, I, I think it was helpful. I think, you know, what I describe in the book, though, is that, you know, Smithfield's perspective of the media is, has always been, you know, they don't understand what we do. It's liberal bias against small family farmers. And, 
you know, and so they had the alternative media that they would churn out blog posts and and social media posts on Facebook from their nonprofit group that they created and funded and made it look like it was independent when it wasn't. There was a furor that broke out in the middle of the trials after the first verdict that was really quite dramatic. And actually, you know, it led to death threats. It led to Judge Britt, the trial judge, to enter what is a really rare kind of restraint on communications by the parties and the lawyers. And that ultimately was was struck down by the Fourth Circuit as a gag order. Though when I look back at what Judge Britt did, I think he was doing the very best that he could to try to tamp down what was really an incendiary situation. That was not being fueled by the the mainstream media. That was being fueled by Smithfield's aligned groups that were, you know, really creating an uproar in the community down east to the point where witnesses were being intimidated, where people were being targeted on Facebook with advertisements. And there was real concern about the possibility that the jury would be tainted by all of this because, of course, jurors, they weren't sequestered. They went home every night. And they got cell phones and there's no way for them, you know, I guess they could turn off the radio in the car, but we live in a world being bombarded with different sources of information. And so there's real concern about the possibility of of all that. So that's really the role the media played. I mean, you know, on the side of, I think, truth and justice, you know, there, there were some really good stories written. Defending Smithfield, there was a whole lot of really interesting kind of alternative fact kind of stories that I included in the book because I thought, the whole thing was quite dramatic. Well, you know, I thought that the judge here was quite a central figure. He was a conservative, older judge, I believe his early 80s, Judge William Earl Britt, B-R-I-T-T. And he handled matters, according to your narration, really extremely judiciously. And he was up against massive social media hate mail against everybody who was challenging the pig industry including the judge, the potential jurors, the lawyers, the families. In England, this would have been immediate contempt of court. That is, in in England, you file a tort case and you walk out of the courtroom and you say anything antagonistic or pejorative about the judge and the people in the court, the judge will cite you for contempt. They don't have the niceties of the First Amendment when it comes to disparaging publicly trials, especially in such extreme terms. So that's part of the pressure that Mona Lisa Wallace and the lawyers had to take, and of course, the the families and everybody concerned. But it was very fortunate that these trials, at least most of them, drew Judge Britt. The defendant corporations and their corporate lawyers really tried to get them out of there And they tried everything, and they failed. So now I want to get to the trials. And Mona Lisa Wallace, can you just give our listeners, I don't think many of them eat pork, but tens of millions of people in the U.S. eat pork, and they don't have much of an idea of how this pork chop reached them and what the nature of the hog industry is like. I think it might turn their stomach if they saw some of it portrayed on television. But could you describe, you filed the case, describe your diligent trial lawyer from Texas, and just just take it from there. Give us a three, four, 
five-minute summary of how you wound up in front of the jury, and then what, what did the jury decide? Okay, so basically, thank you for mentioning Mike Kesky, a lawyer out of state from Texas, is an incredible trial lawyer, and he was virtually our only co-counsel in the case. So it was Wallace and Graham. We are Salisbury, North Carolina, always lived in North Carolina, small town firm. And honestly, I have to say that you ask about why we focus so much on property rights. As a mother and a grandmother myself, I cannot imagine having a home where you didn't know when there would be unpredictable odors or smells that would keep you from going out into your yard or having your grandchildren outside and the odors were just overwhelming and they had to come in, especially for people who live in, in smaller homes and have big families in Eastern North Carolina where it's very, very hot. So there was constant on and off unpredictable odor, trucks, truck traffic, dead hog trucks that were coming by day and night, flies, gnats, and those type of problems that did significantly interfere with these wonderful people's abilities to use their homes. And their homes meant just as much or more to them than I can say the homes of, of anyone else. And they had just as much right to use and enjoy them. So we did have five federal trials. Our clients did come to court. They had to live in Raleigh, North Carolina, stay in a hotel during the week, go into courtrooms where there would be hundreds of people from the industry or on the half of the industry there in court against them. And there would be generally very few on our side of the courtroom. There were meetings, open meetings that the industry sponsored at the fairgrounds. It was all of those kinds of things going on during our trials. And essentially, we let People tell their stories of how it affected them, how when they went out, it would cause them problems with breathing or their nose running or give them a headache, those types of things from the odors. They talked about essentially their family histories, how these homes had been there generally before the hog farms came. And we based the case on science and medicine. We had a former EPA scientist who had done early work. His name is Dr. Shane Rogers for the EPA. And he actually went out and found a DNA bacteria on the home's of the neighbors, which proved, of course, the odor was there because this particular DNA particle or bacteria is the type that came only from the gut of hogs. And then we had an, another incredible hero, a gentleman named Dr. Steve Wing. He was from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He was an epidemiologist. He died several months before our first trial, but we preserved his testimony. And he had for decades studied the situation as had other physicians over the years. And they had documented how all of the problems that are created by using the spray and lagoon system, they documented the problems with the environment on children's health, as you mentioned earlier, Ralph, especially when there were schools or churches in the neighborhoods. Uh, how it affected children, how it caused people to be in a, in a bad mood or depressed 
are disillusioned from having to live under those conditions. So that was essentially, again, the type of testimony. We had scientists, we had physicians, we had an epidemiologist. And I have to say that the thing that I think meant the most to me, that the lesson that I learned the most is how important it is in this country that juries be allowed to make decisions. These people and others for decades before them had reached out to their county commissioners, to their senators, to every administrative agency they could. And only when they got to the court and only because of the independence of the jurors were we able to help those people. And hopefully those decisions will at least encourage the industry to make better choices in the future. Now, we're going to get to that, how the lawsuits made them shape up their industry a little better. But tell us about the jury verdicts. Now, listeners should know that Smithfield and the other defendants were very capably represented by powerful law firms. Who was the main law firm? Can you name it, Mona? An an extremely good firm called McGuire Woods, primarily out of Virginia and out of Raleigh. All right. And you're out of Salisbury, North Carolina, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. So tell us what the jury came in with. Under North Carolina law, if you ask for punitive damage, the law only allows three times the amount in dollars that you got for compensatory damage. Can you just explain what the jury started coming in with in trial one, two, three, four? Yes, sir. Well, first, there were five federal trials, and I'm very, very happy to say that In each of those five federal trials, we have 12 jurors in each case, so that would be 60 jurors, and all 60 of the jurors and all five of the federal trials were asked the same question. The question was, did the defendant, and that was Murphy Brown, LLC, substantially and unreasonably interfere with the plaintiff's use and enjoyment of his or her property? And all five of the federal trials, the jurors unanimously concluded that, yes, there had been a substantial and unreasonable interference. And that, again, was based on the testimony, as I mentioned earlier, primarily of the individuals. By the way, almost none of these individuals had ever been or set foot in a courthouse before, and almost all of them were minorities of color of limited means. The verdicts in North Carolina, we have a mandatory cap or a limit on how much you can recover in punitive damages. It's three times the amount of compensatory damages or another cap of 250,000. The first trial involved six individuals and the verdict combined was $50 million. And those individuals were chosen by the plaintiff. The federal judge allowed Smithfield to choose the second group of bellwether plaintiffs or plaintiffs, and that was called the McGowan case. And by the way, there were 10, I'm sorry, there were 10 in the first group in the first trial. There were two in the second trial. The verdict came in for 25130000 in the second trial. In the third trial, and that was the longest trial, if I recall, there were only six plaintiffs, and the verdict in that case was the largest, I believe, 
in North Carolina history. It was $473,500,000. That included compensatory and punitive. And yes, isn't sir. it true that that had to be cut back because it yes. was much more than three times? Oh, yes, sir. They were very, very, very substantially reduced because of the North Carolina cap, the limit on punitive damages. And in fairness to the defendant, the verdicts were primarily the amounts were for punitive damages as opposed to compensatory damages. The last two verdicts, we were successful in those cases. The jury did come in and find that there had been an unreasonable interference but the amounts were very much less than they had been in the first three verdicts. And of course, the defendants, the hog industry appealed and they lost in a two to one decision before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. That included Judge Wilkinson's devastating concurring opinion that I read from. You settled finally the case. You weren't going to go back and retry everything. So the Smithfield came to the table and that settlement, I take it, is confidential? Yes, sir. Okay. But not confidential was what you observed. Did they start cleaning up their act? Why don't you describe the deterrent effect of your many lawsuits on how they handled their business and how they reduced the mistreatment of neighbors and workers, if, if that was the case? Could you describe that? Well, generally, the evidence that came out in beginning in the third trial and, and subsequent trials, Smithville did undertake to make some very positive changes in the way that they had been handling, particularly, for example, the traffic. Instead of the trucks coming 24 hours a day, I believe the testimony, if I recall, was they limited it to from something like 6 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. And on some of their farms, they did, if I recall correctly, talk about refrigerated units, meaning instead of hauling away the dead decaying hogs and allowing them to sit out in the open air, they had refrigeration units. And I'm hopeful and I understand they're using those more and more now as part of an industry standard. And there were other things that there was testimony about that they began doing, which all were very positive steps to improve the industry. Unfortunately, generally, the lagoon and spray system has remained at most of the hog facilities. And it was our position and remained the position we had throughout the trial, that it was outdated, that there was new technology, and that the new technology should definitely have been implemented, which would have improved even more the environment, the potential health risk, and certainly the odor and the problems that the neighbors faced. Are they still using the lagoon and spray system? Yes, they are. Although they have undertaken at some facilities significant new technology as well. Now, here's the stunning finale of all the efforts that Mona Lisa and Mike Kesky and others have engaged in. This took several years of nonstop work, is that the North Carolina legislature, if I read the words by Corbin Addison correctly, they did pass legislation in the middle of the trial. They tried to rub out your case. That failed in the legislation on a vote, but they have eliminated any future nuisance suits against this industry? Is that correct? 
Essentially, the state legislature amended the Right to Farm Act, which limited the financial recovery. If anyone other than the cases that we had would bring a nuisance claim for nuisance involving an agricultural facility, the damages would be very, very significantly limited to essentially property market value. Which in effect nullifies the use of the nuisance doctrine because who can afford as a lawyer to take a case like that on a contingency? Because the property values, is a, especially since these are very low income homes, are minuscule compared to the impact on human health and the right to enjoy your premises, which is the core of your cause of action. So the state of North Carolina, in effect, said, you're not going to be able to do this anymore. And I'm sure the the big pig farm industry has exuded a sigh of relief at the lack of any future lawsuits providing any deterrence to have them apply this new technology that's been available for a long time. What about the state regulators? Were they in the pockets of the hog industry and its allies in the state legislature? The one thing I would say is that in the third trial, there was a representative of the state's Department of Environmental Quality, Christine Lawson, who testified about the state regulators, and and she was the primary state regulator. And the cross-examination was absolutely devastating for the simple reason that, you know, she's a very proud person and proud of her work and, you know, believes in her agency's remit and believes that what they're doing is important. But it came out on cross-examination that she virtually has no power. I mean, that organization, that agency is now under the State Department of Agriculture, which is, you know, the agricultural commissioner is a political appointment. She actually does not have the power, even when observing a violation, to immediately enjoin the behavior and and stop it on a farm. She actually testified that she was overhead at one point and observed the waste being sprayed directly into a creek and actually had to call the corporate representative at Smithfield to get him to turn off the spray. Like she actually, as a regulator, did not have the ability to do that. In addition, she testified that their budget has been slashed and slashed and slashed. So the sad thing is, I mean, Smithfield said over and over and over again, constantly drumbeat in the media, you know, we are the most regulated industry in North Carolina. And it just came out at trial that, you know, if that's the most regulation that there is in any industry in North Carolina, then North Carolina is the most unregulated state in the country. I just don't believe that. Unfortunately, the industry has been very effective at taking the teeth out of the tiger when it comes to regulating the ag industry and the, and pig farming. I'm sure some of our listeners are asking, Corbin, what about the Environmental Protection Agency? What about the federal agencies here? You know, to be honest, that is a very good question. And I did not run across, you know, an extensive, I didn't run across anything that indicated that the EPA was stepping in to take the reins from the state regulators here. And I'm not sure, I don't know enough about, you know, EPA regulations and federal law versus state law and how it all relates to the hog farming industry. But in in telling the story and in doing the research, you know, while the EPA certainly does things, and as Mona pointed out, Dr. Shane Rogers was a EPA scientist that testified at trial, 
I did not see the EPA stepping in and, and trying to regulate this. It may be that, and Mona, you might be able to speak to this better, EPA very often is focused, as I understand it, on you know water, and water pollution was not a claim here. Now, there has been vast amounts of water pollution by you know, in the rivers and streams and in the, in the, in the watershed by the hog farms, but that was not a claim in the cases. And, and that is something that has been a really hard thing to prove through the years, though others have tried, other lawyers have tried. Ralph, it was my understanding that the federal agencies deferred all the responsibilities and duties of handling these types of issues to our North Carolina State Agency. And as he said, the budget was so significantly reduced. At most, I think the evidence showed that there might be an annual inspection. And not always was there even an annual inspection. And then it was only a records review. And the records were generally kept by the grower or the farmer. And it was no way really to oversee whether the record keeping was accurate or not. So it, the inspections were virtually a very limited value, if any at all. You did have some help with the Waterkeepers Alliance, though, didn't you, and, and some other environmental groups? Yes, I cannot speak more favorably about the environmental groups that stepped in and were involved in these cases. There's a group called Southern Environmental Law Center that has a number of lawyers that was incredible. But the Waterkeeper and River Keepers a gentleman named Rick Dove, he helped arrange for flights for decades, even years before we were involved. He and another gentleman, Larry, would fly over and report violations, whether it was water running into contaminated water running into the oceans or the streams or the famous fish kills that you all might have read about. But they were the ones who monitored it. I was surprised that North Carolina did not have a plane or access to aerial photography. So had it not been for the water keeper and the river keepers, and then the support of the other environmental agencies, we really would not have had the photographs and the information we had that addressed where a lot of these were located or the contamination. A lot of them, North Carolina, has a real problem with low-lying land in eastern North Carolina. So these photographs and their recording was just invaluable to the case. Well, last question to you, Corbin. On page 385, you really end the book on a sad note. I'm tempted to read your exact words, but I don't want to. I want you to characterize that after all this effort, and there was some significant compensation paid, but it was deductible and depreciable by these corporations, as I noted in other interviews on this program. How would you foresee the near future here of the relation between this industry and the people in eastern North Carolina? Well, it's complex. I mean, the plaintiffs that were fortunate to have their cases see the light of a courtroom and to get to a jury verdict, the industry decided to do something that was never asked by any neighbor, never asked by the plaintiff's lawyers, never asked by anyone, which is to depopulate the farms, those individual farms. And so I've spoken to the plaintiffs, you know, in those five bellwether communities, and it feels to them like the world has been returned to them, like it's 
the 1960s again before these alien ships descended from the sky, as I described. So for them, it is a kind of relief to have their clean air back and to have their community back in the way that it used to be. But of course, that was never, never the request. The request was for the industry to clean up its act. As Mona pointed out, there have been good changes that have been made, but the, the legacy lagoon and spray field system still remains in place. And we did not mention that 20 years ago in 2000, the state North Carolina attorney general entered into an agreement with Smithfield requiring Smithfield to fund and study new technologies that would replace the lagoon and spray field system. And as Mona pointed out, there is technology that could be put in place, but the industry packed the economic subcommittee and was able to basically torpedo that technology on the basis that it would cost them more than their medieval legacy system. So the challenge at this moment in time is that because the courtroom doors have largely been closed you know, to future plaintiffs and the Smithfield agreement is more or less dead in the water, you know, it is going to be up to the industry to make a change on its own. Unless, and, and I, I do mention this in the conclusion of the book, unless the federal government steps in and there is a great law that is currently on the table in Congress. Cory Booker sponsored it in the Senate. Rod Khanna sponsored it in the House called the Farm System Reform Act. And it would actually enact into federal law some of the, essentially the theory of corporate responsibility that was at the, the heart of the nuisance suits in North Carolina. And it would give the small, you know, the farmers, the growers an opportunity to get out of the industry with a government-funded buyback kind of like the tobacco buybacks in past generations. And it would actually scale down the factory farming. But of course, we're in a, a space now, you know, where laws like that are really, really, really hard to pass. So I do, I end on, a, I think, a truthful note, which is that for some of the neighbors, the effects were transformative, profound for the industry. Unfortunately, because they have such political power, it wasn't as far-reaching a kind of remedy as the lawyers hoped. And for some communities, you know, it's it kind of remains the way it's always been with some minor adjustments. I, I tried not to end on a sad note. I, I actually think that what Mona and her team accomplished, as I put it in the inscription at the beginning that you quoted, was a miracle. I mean, truly a miracle of justice. And it made the lives better for so many people. But unfortunately, there were constraints on what the law can do. And this case demonstrates that there are limits to what even you know, the law in the best possible hands can accomplish. Well, as giant corporatism runs our country into the ground, the only real defiance comes from these trial lawyers in communities around the country and the Seventh Amendment right of trial by jury in the courts of the land in open courtroom, subject to appeal, evidence on the record. People can walk into the courtroom and watch the proceedings. That's about the only thing left. The corporations have bought the legislatures. They have dominated the judiciary at the federal level in recent years. They control the regulatory agencies. It's just the law of torts, trial by jury. Remember that, listeners. Is there anything else as we run out of time, Mona Lisa Wallace and Corbin Addison, do you want to tell our listeners that we didn't cover? 
Just thank you. And, and the words that you said for access to justice, particularly for those who can least afford it, that's why I'm very, very proud to be a lawyer and I'm proud of the legal industry and the attorneys who give up time with their own families and who try to help others. And I encourage others to read this book, but particularly encourage authors like Corbin. Corbin made a, a great sacrifice as well. And because he chose to write this nonfiction book to tell a story that that he felt should be told. And the story is sad, it's true, but it shouldn't be. So hopefully the industry will continue to improve and more authors and more stories can be told that will encourage others to support the jury system. And, and as you said, Ralph, the tort system, uh, because in a lot of situations, that's the only hope so many Americans have. How about you, Corbin? Any last thoughts? Yeah, more than anything, I, I just feel really honored to be, you know, the storyteller, the vessel that was able to bring this story to the world. It's a remarkable story. And I found, you know, I, I've written fiction in the past. I found the writing of this book to be really rare in, in that I just got to spend so much time with people that I truly regard as remarkable human beings. And it comes out on the page. I wasn't making it up. I was, you know, truly came to regard with deep affection. Mona and, and Mike and, and their, their families, their teams regard the plaintiffs with such a deep concern. I, I just loved getting to go down into the community and spend time with the people. It really was a remarkable story. And, and in so many ways, it was better than anything I could have made up had I been writing it as fiction. So again, I just I feel very honored to have been able to to bring this to the world. Well, the book is Wastelands, the true story of farm country on trial by Corbin Addison with a foreword by the famous John Grisham. And I would urge you listeners to gift your local library, your high school, community college, local public library, this book, as well as if you're a member of a book club, to choose it as a, a book to discuss and just ponder what we are looking at in this country in terms of corporate supremacy, corporate coercion, corporate control, from the elimination of our freedom of contract to our freedom to bring a case in the court of law and have a trial by jury. We've been speaking with Corbin Addison, the author of the new book, Wastelands, the true story of farm country on trial with a enthusiastic forward by John Grisham, and with Mona Lisa Wallace, one of the lead lawyers that brought the series of cases against the giant pig industry in eastern North Carolina. Thank you, both of you, and I hope you'll reach many millions of people with your critical message. Thank you, Ralph, so much for asking us to be on the show and what you do for access to justice and for the tort system, your support. Ralph, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome and the best to reach the most number of people in the coming months. We've been speaking with Mona Lisa Wallace and Corbin Addison. We will link to their work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. We'd like to encourage all of our listeners to check out the latest book by Claire Nader. It's called You Are Your Own Best Teacher. This book equips tweens to develop and apply their skills as young citizens, skeptical shoppers, and lifelong learners. Go to inspiringtweens.com to learn more about the book. Up next, our corporate crime reporter, 
Russell Mokyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, September 2, 2022. I'm Russell Mokyber. Wei Chen is the former compliance counsel at the Justice Department. She's currently at Ropes and Gray in Washington, D.C. We caught up with her and asked her about the state of corporate compliance in America. To start off, for most companies, if they were left to their own devices, they would not have compliance officers in their companies, Chen told Corporate Crime Reporter. For many companies, they see compliance is a department that ties your hands. Why would you want that in your company? Because someone tells you you have to have it. You don't know how many real life stories I have heard about compliance officers who are being interviewed and are specifically told, do you understand that we will pay you, but we don't want you to do anything? I have considered writing a book about the many compliance officers who have been fired, who have been harassed, railroaded in every which way, she said. I thought about putting together a book on it. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Mona Lisa Wallace and Corbin Addison. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now for you podcast listeners. We've got more. Stay tuned for bonus material in the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph Nader's weekly column, it's free. Go to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. To order your copy of The Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Our guest will be Dana Milbank to discuss his new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. You're tired of trying You say we have no choice Say you're just one person And who will hear your voice Don't let them fool you You have the power in your hand I'm only trying to school you Listen to